standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I was licked by horses. Wow. They've got a lot of mouth. <laughs> You're like a Disney princess. You've always said that about me, Hannah, and you were always right. One of the first things I did when lockdown ended was I went out for a cup of tea with my friend Joe. Hello, Joe, if you're listening. And I had, I don't know what I was wearing that I had bare legs. That's weird because I very rarely do have bare legs. But mm. I think I must have just had turnips really high on my, on my trousers. Anyway, a dog ran up to me and started licking my legs. And there was this sort of elderly couple sitting at the other table and it appeared to be theirs. And they said, oh, we're really sorry. And I said, that's right. Nobody's licked my legs for ages. I quite enjoyed it. And they just looked really <laughs> Well, actually, she looked really horrified and he pissed himself laughing. And Joe was like, I cannot take you anywhere. Like, stop it. <laughs> You'd have enjoyed these horses then. Yeah. And they would have enjoyed you, Hannah, I'm sure. <laughs> Yes, I am Hannah Dunleavy, and you may think that this is a tone-deaf thing to say, but I never want people to have to apologise for using the expression tone-deaf. Did you see this story at the weekend, Mickey? I was just about to say, I'm sniffing out a story here. Yeah. Please elaborate. Uh, at the weekend, Darren Walker, who is the president of the Ford Foundation, uh, put out the following apology on Twitter. In a recent interview, I used the term tone-deaf inappropriately, and out of context from its literal definition, I am deeply sorry for using this ableist language and apologise to the millions of people with disabilities and the disability community. As someone who is not just tone deaf, but also partially deaf and also has no directional hearing whatsoever, I'd just like to say to people, if you're going to make stupid apologies like that, can you at least do it out loud so I don't have to hear it or at least be able to identify which twat said it? It's just, we're, we're literally, there's a whole genre of television programmes dedicated to openly mocking tone-deaf people, but for some reason we're not allowed to use it in the context of a debate. I don't understand the context because I don't know his context. What was his context? His context was he was using it in a statement, actually ironically to apologise about something else, in which he described himself as tone-deaf and then he apologised for using the word tone-deaf. So is his apology tone-deaf? His apology is to tone deaf people, or, or as they're otherwise known, people who can't sing. And I don't think that's a disability. <laughs> you can't carry a tune in a bucket. As someone who can't sing, I'm open to being mocked about it. In fact, when my mum is really pissed off or sad, I ask her to pick who I should be. And she usually says Kate Bush, but sometimes Florence from Florence and the Machine. And I sing a song of theirs, right, unbelievably badly. And my mum wets herself laughing. He needs to have a little word with himself, I think. Just anything else that he could have done with the time that he spent making that <laughs> apology. And all the lawyers it went through and presumably the PR departments it went through would have been better spent doing literally anything else. He could have just had a little cry one, couldn't he? That would have been better. Yeah, or, you know, done something for the people of Detroit, the town that, like, Ford abandoned. Yeah. Later on, I chat to Laura Lex about her perfect relationship with Liverpool football manager Jurgen Klopp, and Klopp actually, her book about it. OK, so it's pure imagination, but it is also the pure, joyous escapism we all need right now. Absolutely. Jen's easing herself back into work slowly by talking to Rowan Davies, Head of Policy and Campaigns at Mumsnet, and Maria Booker, Programmes Director at Birthrights, about their survey on consent and information in the antenatal period. And it seems that we're taking it in turns to apologise to each other as, in rated or dated, I force Hannah to sit through 40-year-old Goldie Horn vehicle, Private Benjamin, 
and try and work out what the fuck my mother was thinking by constantly letting mini-me sit in front of it. <laughs> Just shaking your head. That's not great for a podcast. I know, I know. I've got so much to say, but I feel like we should save it for rated or dated because in the same way, I've really not got much to say. <laughs> okay, in that case. But first, bears, hammers, me for president again, <laughs> and more bears, but chunkier. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Fuck! Seconded. Might as well drive straight into the brick wall of COVID-19. Where do you want to start, Mick? What is making Britain great, please, Hannah? Okay, yeah, let's be patriotic and look at our own bimfire, which has progressed from merely careering out of control down the hill and is now heading straight for the orphanage, having caught the attention of a pack of bears who've not yet had their tea. And yes, I do know bears don't come in packs, but the real word was distracting in that sentence. But who is to blame for the latest rise in COVID cases? Last week, in an interview, the Prime Minister delivered perhaps his clearest message to date on coronavirus to the British public. It's all our fault. Mm. No in, out, use your common sense fucking around with this one. It was us wankers. What did it? We've become, in Johnson's words, complacent. Blase, and our discipline has frayed. I mean, at the risk of sounding juvenile, I know you are, but why am I? (laughs) In scenes not witnessed since we all stood in the street banging our pots for the NHS, the nation appeared to give out a collective roar of, well, it was hard to tell because it was quite so loud. But there was definitely some, what were those adverts telling us to go out about then? Some, didn't you tell us to go back to work? An awful lot of Barnard Castle. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure I heard some, you paid us to go to restaurants, you cunt. You know, but I can't be sure. Maybe eat out to help out did mean that thing that we all went (laughs) about when it was launched. (laughs) Titter, titter. By the time Johnson was politely skewered by ITV's Hannah Miller, asking why the North is subjected to rules the South isn't and maybe should be, and how confusing existing advice is, The PM was back to bluster and his panacea answer for us to use our common sense. Which, given he just called us complacent and blasé, suggests he thinks we probably didn't do it the first time. So keep repeating it will have little effect. Much like saying, have you tried hitting it with a hammer? When your first suggestion was, have you tried hitting it with a hammer? And the (laughs) it is a dick caught in a zip. Back to COVID, this time in America, after this from Mick. Just a little fun fact to add to Hannah's story there. The collective noun for bears is a sleuth, or indeed a sloth of bears. It is. Obviously, that's not my main story, and neither is this, but I just couldn't resist sharing the news that Cedric O, France's technology minister, has said that his colleagues in government who have failed to download the country's COVID-19 contact alert app were being very French. (laughs) And yes, I am absolutely assuming he shrugged while saying this. Was he naked from the waist down? I can only only hope so. And uh, just clad in a beret and a stripy top, obviously. In itself, it seems like a very French thing to say, thus earning him the award for this year's most French. A votre santé, monsieur O. Is his name actually Cedric O? He's just got an O, yeah. He's the most French thing that's ever happened to France. Was he smoking a whole packet of Jetain when making this statement? Yeah. He was smoking a whole packet of Jetain and smoking a bicycle. He couldn't be more French. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, let's go to some news closer to home. The family of Sakina Afris Harbi, a disabled woman who died trapped in Grenfell Tower, is taking legal action against the government to force high-rise owners to make evacuation plans for every disabled resident. I mean, why isn't this already a thing? But no, government proposals arising from the disaster dictate that personal evacuation plans should only apply for people in buildings considered at immediate fire risk. So that covers about 5,000 people living in high-rise homes covered with Grenfell-style cladding. And that just leaves around 155,000 disabled people living in high-rise blocks without a personal evacuation plan. Why? Because the government has deemed it disproportionate and, and this is my favourite quote, operationally challenging to deliver. <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah, exactly that. Oh, okay, cool. That makes it... No, try harder, fuck knuckles. It would have been life and death, said Sakina Afrasabi's daughter, Nazanin Alglani, when asked what the effect of an evacuation plan would have been. Sakina, who had severe arthritis and walked using a frame, was housed on the 18th floor of Grenfell oh, Tower. An evacuation plan would have revealed that she shouldn't have been housed so high up, which seems like common sense to me. But, well, yeah, as Hannah just said, have we tried hitting this government with a fucking hammer? The Home Office has received the pre-action letter and has so far declined to comment at this stage. Disproportionate is a funny word, isn't it? In, in as much as, you know, if you were in a slum house that you were renting off a slum landlord... And you said, can I have a fire escape? And he said, no, I think that's disproportionate. You know, <laughs> you'd be absolutely horrified, wouldn't you? You know, I think well, that's too much like hard work or it'll cost me money. That's what all those things mean. Absolutely that. And, we, you know, we just wouldn't want people to be too safe, Hannah. Like, no. where would that lead to us? Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so, Mick. Remember when Joe Biden received the Democratic nomination and I said, so it'll be Trump v. Biden, although given they're both in their 70s and there's a pandemic on, who knows what will happen? Yes, I do. I do remember that because you are, after all, as Jane Hill stated, an oracle. I've written bites fist audibly here, but that's not actually a thing. So I'm just going to have to say it. Bites fist audibly. So, yes, rumours started to circulate late last week that Trump may have picked up COVID-19 when White House staffer Hope Hicks tested positive. That is a funny name, isn't it? It's a great name. It sounds a, a bit name. like, do you remember in like the late 90s, early 2000s, all films just had two words? Yeah. And there was this story about how they were going to run out of a combination of those two words. Well, Hope Hicks sounds to me like a Julia Roberts or like uh, Kate Hudson style working girl like romantic comedy or it starts sounds like the start of a sentence hope hicks don't turn up at the barn dance drunk again this year or something <laughs> i think it's a uh, deliverance reimagined as a romantic comedy yeah yeah lots yeah. of banjos yeah we'll have that for rated or dated um <laughs> it's probably better than the ones we're fucking picking by week's end it was announced that trump had tested positive for the hoax sorry disease leading him to immediately upgrade it to a plague via his Twitter <laughs> account. Fears he might also have infected Biden were soon allayed when the former vice president announced he had tested negative, as did current vice president Mike Pence. Not such good news for Melania, who has the Rona, although it's unclear how, given she doesn't appear to have let Trump touch her in the last decade. Wise woman. <laughs> who do you think she caught it 
If anything is a better advert for the space bit of Han's face space, I don't know what it is. She's quite militant about keeping that when she's around him, isn't she? (laughs) batting his hand away. Also infected at a Rose Garden super spreader event include malfunctioning Stepford wife robot Kellyanne Conway and former governor of New Jersey Chris Christie, who will be a familiar name to anyone who read my Donkeys and Elephants column back when we were an online magazine. The 58-year-old tweeted that he had checked himself into a hospital as a precaution, given he has asthma, and presumably because he looks like a child's drawing of the word unhealthy. (laughs) While I'm on that, by the way, can you just check into a hospital like it's a hotel? Susan, can you make pornography come on my telly, please? That's nurse Susan to you, and no... (laughs) Conspiracy theories about Trump's condition immediately sprung up, obviously, although not from the usual quarters. Prepared to accept that masks are part of a government plot to, I don't know, make beards less trendy? You swivel-eyed lunatic. (laughs) Prepared to accept that Trump is making all this up to swing the election? You smart fucker. There's currently several doing the rounds, but one of them is that that Trump is aware that he will lose and he's trying to avoid losing, which actually to me, doesn't seem to fit with anything we know about his personality because it also involves him not fighting, which is what the sort of image that he gives out to his people, doesn't it? That he's like a fighter, that he can beat this. If he has to not run because of this, then he's basically admitting that everything he has said in the last six months is bullshit and I don't think he's got it in his personality to do that. Isn't one of the theories that he has caught the plague... So that he can recover from it. Well, there is also that, because Boris Johnson didn't really have a bump in popularity, but he did avoid a lot of criticism for the period in which he was quite ill, which is, I'd say, two to three weeks, which would take Trump right up to the election. I I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, moving onwards. What does all this mean for the election? Who fucking knows? Well, I thought you would. I was hoping. (laughs) Well, well, I do know a little bit. As we we actually previously discussed, if Trump dies, Pence becomes the president. If he dies, it then goes to Nancy Pelosi, who was actually tested negative for the plague. (laughs) Then Chuck Grassley, who is 87. So, again, I'm just going to have to say the word trucks because it's really (laughs) not coming across in uh, in the audio. And then, if I recall correctly, it's Alec Baldwin, the president of the House of Cards fan club, and then you, Nikki. Yes! Please get your votes ready. Same rules apply if he is incapacitated. And here is a fun-ish fact. That's only happened three times previously. And all of them have been due to colonoscopies or colon surgery. I'm sure there's a joke in there. I just can't, I can't find it. If Trump can't stand rather than Trump can't sit... Well, that's... <laughs> there you go, there's the joke. Well, that... That's He's a just whole... going to look like Mark Zuckerberg. He's going to have to take all his meetings sat on a whoopee cushion or a rubber ring. <laughs> well, that's a whole other shit show. Again, uh, maybe there was a joke in there. <laughs> you lied about not having jokes. <laughs> For which there seems no precedent and no clarity. It might be why Trump decided to leave his room at Walter Reed Medical Centre and go on a little drive past of well wishes, presumably causing everyone in the motorcade to then have to self-isolate for a fortnight. 
What is it about people in authority who may or may not have coronavirus deciding to try it out with a a little drive, just get in the car? I mean, I can't imagine a better use of time and resources than that, to be honest. What I will say is that I feel less confident that Trump will win again now than at any time in the last four years, which I might struggle to articulate the cause of, but shit, it certainly feels good. Well, I only hope that this is your Oracle Sixth Sense kicking in again, Dunleavy. It's got to make a difference. I just don't think we can predict what that difference is going to be currently. But I think it will make a difference. Watch this space. In the meantime, would you fancy some cheering news, Hannah? Yes, please. Cool. There is an altogether more fun election happening in America right now as Fat Bear Week sees members of the public voting for their favourite of the fattened bears currently doing their portly ursine thing at Brooks River in southern Alaska's Katmai National Park. The brown bears are, of course, padding up for hibernation, and there are 12 contenders for the fattest bear title, including defending champion Holly, also known as the Queen of Corpulence, two-time winner Otis, and the affectionately named Behemoth, fat-booted walker. <laughs> you, dear listener, may already know the results, because as we record, Fat Bear Tuesday, which is when the winner is announced, is tomorrow. I mean, fuck it. Let's make whoever wins Fat Bear Week the actual president. (laughs) Holly for POTUS. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we give sexism a wave. Nah, a bigger wave than that. Even bigger. Like, bigger than a man's wave, if you can imagine such a proposition. Yep, this week we are venturing into the world of big wave surfing, where the World Surf League reported that Brazilian big wave surfer Maya Gabera has set a new world record. The 73 and a half foot wave she surfed... Uh Uh-huh, it's big, big motherfucker. She surfed on February the 11th in Nazari, Portugal, was the largest wave surfed by anyone this year, earning Gabera the WSL's 2020 Women's Extra Extra Large Biggest Wave Award. It also broke her own previous record, a 68-foot wave. And she didn't even just do well for a girl. This year's men's Extra Extra Large Biggest Wave Award winner, Kai Lenny, rode a 70-foot wave. Still impressive, obviously, but no Gabera. So where's the sexism? Well, thanks for asking. You do know that the world will not disappoint. The WSL's Big Wave Awards are basically the Oscars of surfing, so there's a lot of fanfare when the winners are announced. Obviously, COVID has put paid to the usual live events to celebrate and dish out the awards, and this went online instead. And both the men's and women's awards in this category were due to be announced together on August the 17th. But no, Lenny was duly announced as the winner of the men's category, but the WSL said the women's race needed further judging, and so the announcement would be delayed. I mean, they'd only had since February, right? It seems weird to me that an organisation would judge women more than it would judge men. Yeah, I mean, well said Hannah. It turns out they deemed the women's competition needed some extra wave measuring and decided to use a whole new set of measurement techniques, meaning that Gabera's incredible achievement wasn't announced until a month later, which pretty much drowned her potential recognition for outsurfing all of the men this year. Like I say, they had only had those six months to sort it out. Six months! The WSL say the extra measuring wasn't because Gabira's wave was bigger than Lenny's, but because the women's competition was super close. So, okay, let's go with that. It is still a massively missed opportunity for equality. The extra measuring, which came in at a 16-page scientific report, by the way, 
meant that the men's competition was judged totally different to the women's, as Hannah has just said. And like many extreme sports, big wave surfing is still viewed as a very masculine world. So Gabeira's had to work her arse off to get where she is. And by where she is, I mean to become the person who surfed the biggest wave of 2020, not just in the women's category. There's an absolutely cracking piece in The Atlantic about this if you've got 15 minutes spare for a long read and a big scream. Yeah, like I say, I mean, it's not like the rest of society judges men and women to your different criteria all the time anyway. So why not different for them? Fucking hell. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? There's literally something to do with measuring length. It feels very, <laughs> very phallic. Hello, I am joined on the phone by comedian and Twitter sensation turned author, Laura Lex. Laura, hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How's your day going? It's been very lovely. I've taught a little stand-up lesson over Zoom and now I'm doing my car text on my Duolingo. What a life. <laughs> what a life. Now then, I don't know whether it's the constant global bin fires or the fact I'm due on what one man on Reddit referred to as a woman's special time, but I am mostly cranky <laughs> at the world. And Klopp, actually, your book about your imaginary marriage to a man you know nothing about feels like the brilliantly funny tonic we all need. So tell us how it came about. In a nonsense way. Um, (laughs) So just before lockdown happened, so we're going back to March, I was in Glasgow on that last weekend of gigs before everything stopped. And um, I felt sort of a bit insecure about being there because I didn't have a mask or any hand sanitizer and I was a bit like should we be gigging I don't know what's the pandemic going to look like and I had seen a press conference a couple of days ago with this guy called Jürgen Klopp didn't know who he was but somebody had asked him about COVID and he kind of went why are you asking me I'm a football manager ask somebody that knows and I was like oh my god I love him (laughs) (laughs) who is this who is this man and, and how is he this sensible? So I started doing these tweets that were just like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be married to this really sensible guy? Like, you know, he'd he'd have firm rules for me and then let me break them because I'm adorable and like all of this stuff. <laughs> so I started writing this thread and and it just went wild on Twitter. Like people were like, oh God, yeah, this is the romance I've been waiting for. So I had this sort of crazy weekend of... of these viral tweets but you know I've had stuff go viral before so I just sort of thought you know your flavor of the month today and then tomorrow somebody else shares a baby being cute and everyone forgets you (laughs) fine but that just didn't happen and then all of a sudden I had a literary agent because people were like these are really well written have you ever written a book and I was like yeah but nobody's published it so can't have been that good and then they said well would you turn this into a book and obviously at the time I was facing financial ruin, what with all gigs being cancelled. So I was mm-hmm. like, yes, I will absolutely have a go at doing that if you pay me in advance. So <laughs> um, <laughs> sat down through the pandemic and sort of, yeah, tried to write something uplifting and a bit comforting and a bit sweet. I'm so tired of everything having to be edgy in order to be successful. And I was like, can we just have something that's a bit nice, like dairy milk, but a book, you know? (laughs) Well, you have absolutely succeeded. It is pure joyous imagination. Was it as fun to write as it is to read? It was quite fun. Yeah, it was. It was one of those things that like it was it was quite a good release because obviously I was in lockdown with my actual husband. So every time he did something that annoyed me, I had to go and write a chapter where Klopp didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Which I appreciate is not the healthiest way to run a marriage, but it was sort of quite, 
it was quite nice sort of like, you know, doing jokes and, and so lovely for me because I've been a stand-up for years, writing jokes that could be in more flexible formats than stand-up mm-hmm. allows for. Um, it got quite difficult, like, as I was sort of nearing, because I think I had about eight, seven or eight weeks to write it. And all of that was in the very, very strict lockdown with only an hour out for exercise. So I did hit a few points. Where I was like, I've just run out of stimulus now. There's no new creative input coming in, but I'm like mining every memory I've ever had for uh-huh. stuff I could write about. But it was, um, oh, I love writing. It was a lovely distraction. You're quite candid about the fact that you can be fairly anxious. Was it a way of dealing with anxiety? Because the beginning of lockdown, I think, sent a lot of us a little bit doolally. Yeah, my experience with lockdown was actually quite odd. I felt quite serenely calm through it. But I wondered if that was just that everybody else was coming up to my normal level of anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good point. I'm always worried that it's nearly the end of the world. I'm always paranoid about society collapsing and how will I feed us if co-op doesn't have the food. Like that sort of thoughts cross my mind constantly. So it just felt like everybody else was cottoning onto all this stuff that I was worrying about. The book, I I don't normally find talking about these things comforting at the time because I kind of find it quite difficult mining myself for that stuff. But... It was a great comfort to me to be able to include experiences of anxiety in the book in a genuinely funny way out of something that is so lighthearted. Like to be able to talk about heavy stuff in a really flippant, lighthearted way. Now that it's done, I'm really glad that the book is more than just smut. Obviously, it's 90% smut. (laughs) But at the time, I always find these things, like when I do stand-up about anxiety, I find it tricky. But then once it's done and I'm seeing the result it has for people, then I find it comforting. Is it hard to turn off Klopp, your inner Klopp? <laughs> um, all I have to do is think about the actual man. And then I feel <laughs> so, such a mixture of like, oh, this poor man, I hope he doesn't mind. and uh, <laughs> And sort of that kind of thing I think because I base a few of the things on my husband who is delightfully pragmatic and a good tonic to me so I base some of it on him and I love my real husband with such an embarrassing like overblown (laughs) amount of affection that I think it's all right (laughs) have you had any response from Klopp himself has Jürgen been in touch no but I found out yesterday that he has now been told about the book. Oh, that's exciting. Um, I had a message from somebody connected to Liverpool Football Club to say that they had been chatting to him, that they'd informed him of it that morning. And he had, and I quote, said, it sounds hilarious and asked for the link. So we shall see. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I'm quite relieved that he thought it sounded hilarious rather than instantly set up a restraining order. Because (laughs) it feels sort of like, I know I've written a book about you, but I promise I'm not totally weird. Yeah, I guess um, I'd be quite interested to see if he found it funny. And then, obviously, he'll want to meet me because I'm hilarious. And then we can do a sport relief sketch together where we um, read parts of the book. And then we'll probably just be best friends. And then he'll write like a retaliatory book, you know, like a response book to my book. It'll be a whole new avenue for him. And then we'll be on Celebrity Bake Off together. And then Celebrity Strictly will be the first pair to be two celebs 
dancing together instead of having a professional partner. No, I'm not going to stand for that. I'm sorry. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I've got an imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think you two could save 2020. I'm very excited. (laughs) Yeah. It's nice to just have stuff that, like, I know that you don't want to be ignorant and ignore everything that's going on in the world, but also there's a limit to how much of it you can change. So you don't have to spend all your time focusing on it. Oh, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's delightful given how toxic Twitter can be and how divisive it can be that you have used it as a force for, I'm going to say, good. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose I know Twitter's toxic and I see it. I often choose not to engage with it mm-hmm. in that sort of like ignore the bad behavior and praise the good behavior and you know? <laughs> treat it like a child where like <laughs> I very rarely respond to trolling from people and I try to keep my own tweets as upbeat sort of like I'm honest but I don't often like and I try to never criticize anybody on there because I just think like if you don't like that behavior don't engage in it you know it's mostly lovely people but if you always highlight the ones being naughty it will feel like it's delinquent i mean i'd love to believe you laura but i've seen how aggressive you get when someone mentions cardamom oh yeah well cardamom's a different story cardamom's disgusting and people were coming at me with their stupid opinions and they needed to be told <laughs> i should tell you that you somewhat oddly inspired me to do something Oh, really? Yeah, at the beginning of the year, and this has since been, you know, affected by the pandemic, as has everything. But I, uh, I took up netball, mate. Did you? I did, yeah. What, what position are you playing? I play sort of defence, either wing defence or goal defence. Occasionally, for some oh, reason, because I'm so tall, fun. they put me as shooter, and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> are you enjoying it? I play by your rules, basically, rather than... Um, <laughs> And the actual rules, which are, as you so brilliantly skitted, so complicated. I'm always in trouble Ugh. for my footwork, always. Yeah. It, it's funny you bring that up, actually, because the second... So I'm writing a second novel, and um, it's about a women's netball team. Oh, because amazing. of doing that bit of material where I was like, do you know what, there's more in this. Seeing the reaction from women who were like, oh, netball. I was like, yeah. That there's an appetite for this, for that shared experience of that weird little game. What is the gist of the novel? It's quite early stages at the moment, but I think it is going to be about a woman who her husband sort of leaves her and her response to that is to start a local netball team of other strays and women who are looking for something else in their life and turn to netball through familiarity. So I wanted a vehicle to get a load of women together that wasn't an office or the fact that they all had babies. And I was like, how do people get men together in script? Oh, sport is often a thing. So uh, I thought, yes, all right, sport, they're going to be a team. And that's what connects them rather than the usual, like, women stuff. That's cracking because the team I play for, I knew a couple of the women on it, but that was it. And then everyone else yeah. is a stranger and comes from very different sort of jobs and stuff for me. So, yeah, it is a real bringer together. I think that's great. I'm excited. Yeah, it's fun. It's an idea that I'd had for a TV show for a couple of years, but we'd never quite found a home for it on any of the channels, annoyingly. And when I pitched it to the publishers, they were like, that sounds amazing, right? That. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> I already know all the characters deep down in my brain. <laughs> I would love to see it on telly, though. You know when you see staged football in programmes and it's always terrible, it's really yeah. hard to do that. Imagine it with netball. Mental. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Yeah, at least it would have to be bad netball because they're not the best netball team in the world. <laughs> oh, is it based on us? I think it's based on us. <laughs> yeah, you're playing the lead role, I think, aren't you? Awesome. I'm, I'm so pleased we've had this chat just to iron out the details. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I imagine that takes up a lot of your time, but I know that you're able to gig again now. So what else are you up to? Yeah, so the last couple of months, it's felt almost back to normal, except that all the gigs have been outside. So I have been gigging like back to normal. I've also been coaching people with stand-up online, which has been lovely, sort of getting to geek out and nerd out about jokes and looking at people's material and writing with them and talking about performance and stuff. That's been lovely. And I got a dog, so <gasps> most of my time That's is exciting. just staring at my adorable dog. Is it, is it the <laughs> I've wanted a dog Russell? for years. Yes, my baby Mackie. I've wanted a dog for years and years and years, but we've always lived in a flat. And then in May, we moved to a house with a garden. And I was like, I don't care that everybody's getting dogs in lockdown and people all think I'm one of those knobheads. I'm getting a dog right now. (laughs) And so now she lives with us and I adore her. They're amazing, aren't they? I swear my my little zoo has kept us going through lockdown. It's been so nice to have them. They don't know what's going on in the world. It's just really refreshing. Yeah, and she's so excited to see me all the time. And it's like, this is the affection I've always craved. (laughs) (laughs) She loses her mind every time I walk back in the room. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So, Laura, Klopp Actually, Imaginary Life with Football's Most Sensible Heartthrob is out now and it's available in all good bookshops. Yeah. And where can people find you on Twitter, please, Laura, to be there when the next viral tweet happens? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm at Laura Lex on Twitter. Two X's because I'm fancy. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been an utter delight. Thanks for having me. I love standard issues. Oh, thank you. Hi, Hannah here. Just having a nice cup of tea. And wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to and also keep me in tea thank you i'm joined via zoom by maria booker program director at birthrights and rowan davies head of policy and campaigns at Mumsnet, to talk about a new survey the two organisations have jointly undertaken around consent and information in the antenatal period. Rowan, can you give us a little bit of background about the survey? On Mumsnet, the whole issue of birth and what happens specifically to women when they're giving birth is a really long-running issue. And Maria, I know at Birthrights also has lots of the same sort of issues come through the Birthrights Advice Service. So we're talking about things like when you're pregnant, when you're discussing the kind of way you want to give birth, what you want to happen, or even when you're in the labour room or giving birth at home, the things that might happen in an emergency situation. We've seen lots of stuff on Mums Net with women saying they didn't really fully understand procedures. They didn't feel they'd really given informed consent to things. They didn't really feel that they understood the risks and the benefits of different procedures before they had already happened to them effectively. And sometimes women feel that they're almost kind of passive recipients of procedures rather than being active decision makers in their own care. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but the idea of the survey was to try to explore 
essentially whether the legal standard that was established by the Montgomery ruling five years ago, that women are supposed to be the active decision makers in their care when they're giving birth, whether that was really how women were experiencing things in the real world. Maria, can you tell us a little bit about the Montgomery ruling? We did this survey to coincide with the fifth anniversary of the Montgomery versus Lanarkshire decision that happened in March this year. The ruling was a really landmark case in terms of clinical negligence and consent because it changed the way courts look at consent. Prior to this court case, if a court was looking at whether the right information was given, and it could be to any patient, not just to somebody in maternity care, but if the right information was given, they would use the test of whether other healthcare professionals would have done the same thing in that situation. That's what's called the Bolan test. They basically use a body of professional opinion to judge whether the right information was given to somebody. Whereas after this case, what the court case said was that it's up to an individual. It's a subjective decision. So if it was really important to that individual to avoid a stillbirth or avoid an injury, you should have made sure that you covered those reasonable options for that individual person taking into account their circumstances. So it's really changed the test of consent in the courts and as such it's a really important case for the work of birthrights and we've been doing a lot of work in the last few years to look at how this court case has been implemented in practice. So we did a seminar a few years ago in Oxford and we brought together some lawyers and some healthcare leaders and some philosophers to look about whether people were actually doing this in practice in the health service and, and not just leaving it as a theoretical possibility and that's why we wanted to do this survey to look at whether women felt this was happening in practice that they felt that they were the ones making the decisions as that court case said they should be. There's two elements to this really in terms of women's decisions around how they give birth and and where they give birth. For a start the survey found that a quarter of mothers said that their decisions were not respected when actually giving birth where midwives and doctors are actually supposed to advise rather than decide on what what treatment will be given or what procedures will be followed. And then also there is the side before that when I guess women are getting their birth plans together where they're actually not even really given the opportunity to discuss how they're going to give birth in the first place. For example the survey found that 74% of women said that they were given the opportunity to discuss vaginal deliveries but only 42% said that they were given the opportunity to talk about cesarean sections for example. There were three main things that came out of the survey. We asked over a thousand women who had given birth about their experience. So this is all women who have given birth. The first thing was that around 24% said their decisions and opinions about their care had not been respected. That includes 14% who say they were directly overruled. A further 30% say their decisions and opinions weren't sought at all, which means they, they didn't feel anybody had even asked them what they wanted. So the first theme was this kind of surprisingly high proportion of women who really hadn't felt they'd had that experience of of being the primary decision makers in their care. The second thing was we gave them the outline of the actual legal position as established by the Montgomery ruling. So that is an expectant mother is the primary decision maker about her care and the midwives and the doctor's role is to advise her. 42% said that didn't reflect their experience and 45% say it did. So you know, roughly half and half. And the third theme that came through was about the kind of differentials in the kinds of nitty gritty information 
women were given. 74% were told about the benefits of a vaginal delivery, but only 42% said they were told about the benefits of a cesarean section. And similarly, 61% were told about the benefits of giving birth in hospital, but only 38% said they were told about the benefits of giving birth at home. There's this impression coming through that healthcare professionals aren't always being entirely even-handed in the way they're presenting the different options. One thing, and Maria has taught me this actually, one thing about the consent issue is it's not a one-off event. If you're going to do consent properly and kind of thoughtfully, it needs to be a conversation that starts during the pregnancy. The woman needs to bring to the table the things that she's really concerned about. So some women will have a real phobia about the idea of vaginal birth because of past experiences. Some women, it will be a real priority for them to get back to work really quickly. So each woman will have different preferences. Each woman will have her own health risk profile so there are certain physiological factors if you've got a big baby if you've got obstetric diabetes if you're relatively short if you're south asian ethnicity this can be a factor so there are some things that really increase your risk factors for having birth injuries or really difficult experiences with a vaginal birth and obviously the healthcare professionals will have their professional opinion about clinically what is safe for you and what is not safe for you and that's a really complex conversation that can only happen effectively between an individual woman and healthcare providers who know what they're talking about and who are prepared to have all of those conversations and to bring all of their information and their expertise to the table lay it out in front of the woman make sure she understands it and then ask her what she wants so it's a really complex process it's not a one-off thing where suddenly you're in the labor room and somebody waves forceps at you and says we're going to use these now you can't expect anybody to make a sensible decision about informed consent when they're midway through a difficult labor all of that information and expertise and conversations needs to happen before that point so that's one strand of it and i think with the cesareans it's really tricky topic and Maria can talk more to what you know what the law says about this but we definitely get the impression from conversations on Mumsa and also from our survey findings that some HCPs appear to be a bit reluctant to have those conversations with women and I think birthrights have done work on this before that there appear to be entire hospital trusts who are really reluctant to offer women cesareans, even when clinically it is absolutely appears to be the best course of option. And then you end up with women sort of somehow feeling that they've, if they've had a cesarean section, that they've done it wrong somehow, which is awful and which, you know, impacts on their whole experience of new motherhood. From my own recent experience, there was a point at which it was floated by a consultant that maybe I would have a cesarean and then I just never heard anything more about it. So quite late on in the pregnancy, I was sort of saying to a midwife, oh, and someone said I might maybe have a cesarean. And she was a bit like, oh, I, I don't know. And I was like, okay. I mean, if I wanted to do that, how would we go about, you know, making that a thing? She she genuinely didn't really seem to know, like, who was responsible for that being the pathway that I was then going to follow. It didn't happen in the end. I didn't have a cesarean. But I think if it had been made a bit, easier for me to navigate probably I would have done you know are you finding that there's a lot of women who have a similar kind of experience there was a great piece of work um, done by UCL and that was published last year the researchers talked about a culture of expected compliance and I think that phrase kind of really sums up for me what a lot of women experience in maternity care so it's not that they're necessarily told that they can't do something it's just that they're not presented with things in a way that makes it feel like there's a choice (laughs) I think that's really kind of at the heart of the culture that we want to 
be changing in maternity services on the back of this court case, because the court case said very clearly that it's up to the woman what the decision is. You know, healthcare professionals have a range of expertise that's invaluable to, to the woman in making those decisions, but it's her choice at the end of the day. Another thing that I found over the whole pregnancy and childbirth situation is that had a lot of discussions with people and it felt a bit like science became not a thing that anyone seemed bothered about anymore. For me, I wanted as medicalised a process as possible. And for some people, that's not what they want. Doctors know what they're talking about and I definitely don't. So I'm happy to put my trust in them to do the right thing. And, And some women that I spoke to when I was pregnant who were pregnant at the same time, to be honest, I thought they were bonkers not listening to advice that they had been given about specific situations. Do you think that, that, that there is a case that maybe you kind of let doctors do their thing? From mums at users' point of view, what they would say is absolutely. So there will be some women who just want to turn up, be given really strong medical advice about what the best thing for them to do is. They will take that advice. And that's how they, as you say, that's how they feel happy and secure. And that's absolutely, obviously fine, because in a way that is a choice, you know, to take that route and to say, I trust you, you're my healthcare provider, you, you're an obstetrician, I'm not, tell me what to do. If that's how you feel happy and safe going into that, then that is actively a choice that you can make. I think one of the things that I've found out over the years working on these issues is the evidence base for some of this stuff is not, I think, as strong as you would expect. There is, it seems to me, quite a lot of data gaps in terms of what happens to women when they leave the hospital after, say, a birth that is included forceps or von twos, or a, a birth that has gone to an emergency C-section, or even, you know, a kind of natural, sorry, air quote, vaginal birth, but to a really, for a big baby. The impacts on women for a long time after that point, you know, can range from daily inconvenience to life-changing. And we collect surprisingly little long-term data about the health of women that is tied to how they gave birth, their, their birth experiences. That's my understanding of it, having tried to find that data for a couple of years now, because we've run campaigns about postnatal care, about the number of women who have incontinence issues. This affects women right up to menopause. It, it will impact on your menopause often, your birth experience. And there is surprisingly little long-term, good quality, longitudinal data that says women who have vaginal births of eight pound babies, what impact does that have on their health for the next 20 years of their life? I think part of my answer to that is yes, I I trust medical professionals, absolutely. And I had two births at hospital. They went well, you know, I had good experiences. I've got really high opinions of, of healthcare providers who work in maternity through my own personal experiences. But I think there's a real lack of that data to make really high quality decisions about things like forceps, which are quite controversial Mm. instruments that are not widely used, in my understanding, in lots of other healthcare systems. I think there's a data gap. With the whole birth plan, you can plan for it as much as you like and as much as you say, I don't want to have an episiotomy, which for listeners who aren't aware is where a cut is made to prevent tearing, basically. I guess the idea is that it's done in a controlled way rather than an uncontrolled way, right? But it takes ages Mm. to heal and there are all sorts of other issues around it. So as much as you can say, I don't want an episiotomy, I don't want a Vontuse delivery, I don't want a cesarean, etc., etc., in the end, you kind of get what you get and you sort of have to 
go along with it to a certain extent but what you found is that a lot of women are just they're not being listened to at all in what they've sort of stated as their preferences in their birth plans even kind of as you say much less catastrophic things than you know emergency births that have gone horribly wrong things like sweeps so again sweeps is if you are i think if your labor is kind of delayed starting for one reason or another there's this procedure where they basically run i think a thumb over your cervix but it's quite an invasive procedure involves you know a vaginal intervention there are some women who just don't want them who just find for whatever reason they find the idea of sweeps unpleasant it can be a little bit painful i think having a sweep and some of the things we found in our survey were women saying i got called into a room and i wasn't asked if i consented to having a sweep which is an invasive vaginal procedure i wasn't asked if i consented to it they just gave me one they just said that they were going to examine me and before I knew what was happening, I was having a sweep. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, it's not on. It's it's That's so wrong on so many levels. So with me, it's just I wasn't told I was having one. She was doing an examination and then she, afterwards she was like, well, I've done a sweep as well <laughs> while I'm up there kind of thing. And and actually, it's although I did not know it was going to happen, and yes, it it is quite painful. It was actually the best thing for me because then my waters broke quite quickly afterwards and, and everything got cracking. But yeah, it's a bit of a surprise that no one's even asked you if you consent to that in the first place. And I have a friend who actually said I, I don't want to sweep and was given one anyway, despite that. So it is quite common, isn't it? I spoke to a woman a couple of weeks ago who was saying she went into an appointment. She said, oh, we want to bring your induction forward. She, she didn't even know she'd been booked in for an induction. That was just what happened as standard, you know, at the end of your pregnancy. And it's the same kind of thing. And I think that's it is really concerning. And I think this is something that we really need to tackle. It's quite an important point to make, I think, which is this isn't about women being difficult. So it's not about women wanting the information so that they can say, no, no, don't do that. Or I've decided I'm going to fling my arms up in the face of all medical science and choose a completely wacky course. It's just that women are entitled to know what's going to happen, to be told what the risks and benefits are and to say, yes, I consent to that or no, I don't. It's just this should be automatic. I think sometimes people see this as women trying to open up an opportunity to be difficult. It's not being difficult. It's actually asking for really common or garden respect as an autonomous adult. We give kids this level of autonomy in healthcare. I've got teenage boys and no doctor does things to them without their consent. I have a strongly held belief that if men gave birth, they just would have found a better way to do it. Apart from the, the patently obvious that people just don't like to listen to women particularly, why is this happening still? Why don't we have the evidence for, you know, as you say, Rowan, interventions that are carried out during childbirth? And Maria, I think from from your point of view at birthrights this case nadine montgomery's case was five years ago so why are we still in this position when that is actually the law why is the law not being followed i wish i knew the answer to that question because then perhaps we could <laughs> we could sort of solve it i think it's a really ingrained cultural issue i think that healthcare professionals are often worried about doing the wrong thing and they perceive that doing the right thing is following the guidelines so i think we have quite a convey about kind of system where you're put in a pathway and you, you go down this route and you have everything that's in that pathway and that's just the way it is and what we should have is a system where care is wrapped around the woman it's individualized to her it's agreed with her what's important to her and if she wants to refuse things she can 
refuse them and if she wants to accept things she can accept them and I, you know I think there's a lot of elements that contribute to that from training to you know negligence cases hanging over people to leadership but I think it is a really deeply ingrained cultural issue that we have to address. Yes I think on the data issue the the phrase that keeps coming back to me is is you measure what you value and I think the the whole impact of birth on women's lives postnatally and when I say postnatally I don't mean for six weeks I mean the 30 40 years however long those impacts last it's something that women have tended not to talk about or they've talked about in hushed tones amongst each other but they haven't talked publicly about it lots of women are reluctant even to go to their GPs with issues like incontinence or you know painful sex or all of those long-term impacts that can happen so I think it's partly that it's been invisible I think there's also there's lots of kind of perverse incentives within the healthcare system essentially to not if you can't do something about it if you can't immediately see what the solution is going to be then the issue goes on the back burner. There isn't an easy solution to women who have, say, lifelong double incontinence from a a really difficult birth. There aren't that many clinical interventions that are really effective once that has happened. So I think there's a certain impulse to think, well, if we can't fix it, what's the point in measuring it? And so I think we've been trying to make the argument for getting that data collected. It's also partly just the sheer size of the NHS. It's a tanker. You know, it's an amazing tanker. And we all love it, but trying to get the NHS to do something differently is a huge job. We're always really conscious at Mumsnet whenever we get stuck into these campaigns about maternity care. You know, midwives work so hard. They're under so much pressure. goes for all maternity care professionals, I think. And understandably, when they feel criticised, they quite often get really defensive and really, really fed up which doesn't help to change anything, you know, so then you just kind of get, everybody gets entrenched in their positions. And I think often healthcare professionals would like to provide that kind of care. We always talk about, you know, empowering healthcare professionals to deliver individualised care by knowing about what the law is, because I think often they just feel constrained and feel that they're going to get into trouble if if they actually do what they would like to be doing in terms of looking after women in an individualised way. Maria, it is still the case in many hospitals around the country that women's birth partners are not able to attend births with them for the duration of that period. So I, I think they're allowed during active labour. But for example, if you're having an induction, you might be hanging around a while before you were in active labour, which is, I can tell you, a pretty unpleasant experience anyway what's going on because it does seem completely mad that I can go to Nando's but you know a woman can't have someone with her while she's giving birth absolutely tell me about it it's quite frustrating I think there's two things going on I think we're seeing a lot of anger from women at the moment understandably for exactly the reasons you say why am I allowed to go to the shops or, or go to the pub or a restaurant but not have my partner with me at the most important time in my life and I think that's very hard to give any kind of rational justification for I think the other thing is that there's huge variation between trusts so we have some trusts that are allowing partners to stay overnight or at least allowing them from 8am to 8pm on the postnatal ward for example in other trusts they're either not allowed at all or it's just for an hour and again with scans some trusts are allowing partners to scans and others are not and the same with induction and there's just such huge amounts of variation and now there may be some justifications for that in that you know some of these trusts will be in areas where coronavirus levels are high and some of them have estates which are quite constrained and they might have a very small scanning room for example that they can't do anything about 
So there may be some areas and some hospitals where it's quite hard to allow partners in and still um, meet the social distancing requirements. But nevertheless, those factors don't account for why we see this huge variation. So, you know, we've been talking to NHS England for quite a while. We wrote to them in August about this issue saying, come on, it can't be the norm that partners aren't allowed to be involved in maternity care. They have published some guidance. Uh, they published it on the 8th of September and they published a framework which gave trusts a guide about how they could relax visiting restrictions going forward, which is helpful. You know, that's a, that's a good step forward. We would have liked to have seen a bit more kind of moral encouragement about why trusts need to do that, given that the harm it's, it's causing to um, women and their families. But nevertheless, um, you know, we're really keen to see trusts get on with implementing that now, at least where they can do if um, coronavirus cases aren't particularly high in their area. Where can women find out more about this survey and this campaign and also, you know, their their own right? Well, if you want to talk to other women who've already been through it or who are currently pregnant and are facing up to sort of these questions themselves on Mumsnet, there's lots and lots of peer-to-peer advice and support. And also, there's lots of resources on the Birth Rights website as well, which is www.birthrights.org.uk. And we also have an advice service for women. So if you're pregnant at the moment and you feel you're not being listened to, you're very welcome to contact our advice service and we'll give you individualised advice. If anyone wants to sort of chip in on Twitter, where can they find Mumsnet and Birthrights? We're at Mumsnet Towers. And we are at Birthrights.org. Thank you both very much for chatting to me. And yeah, keep up the excellent work. Welcome to Rated or Dated, which this week was chosen by Mickey. Mickey, what film did you make us watch? Can I blame my mum? Can I blame my mum for everything? I mean, I do most things anyway, and those that I don't, I blame my dad. So yeah, we can certainly blame someone. Okay, good. Okay, in that case, this week, after last week's Coyote Ugly debacle, we further test our friendship with 1980s fish-out-of-water comedy, and that is the filmmaker's word, not mine, Private Benjamin. A few fun facts. Confirming that there is no accounting for taste, the film was one of the biggest box office hits of 1980 and spawned a short-lived television series. It is ranked number 82 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list, meaning it beats Beetlejuice and Fargo. And an even more... I know, right? And an even more unbelievable number 59 on Bravo's list of 100 Funniest Movies. It was an industry success as well, nominated for three Oscars. Best Actress for Goldie Hawn as our titular heroine, Best Supporting Actress for Eileen Brennan as Captain Lewis, her nemesis, and Best Original Screenplay. No nomination for director Howard Zeef. A quick plot summary. Scatterbrained high society darling Judy Benjamin copes with the unexpected death of her second husband who dies while on the job on their wedding night by accidentally joining the United States Army. Hilarity, and please very much note the inverted commas there, ensues. 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 You've gone all Cedric O. Cedric O. Uh, well that is the first 45 minutes of it anyway halfway through judy meets saucy frenchman and former communist Henri, played by armanda sante meaning she quits her flourishing career in the army to be his bride but has a lucky escape when she finds out he's a right old dirty cad and possibly still a communist this is after all 80s america or as i call them 
French. <laughs> I'm shrugging in a Gaelic way. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Turns out you have to rescue yourself. Roll credits. It is very much a film of two halves, one of which I had clearly wiped from my memory. In fact, I think I only really remember the initial army montage where Benjamin does everything wrong and the subsequent army montage where she's very much improved. And together, they're the best 12 minutes of the film, even if I did worry at this point that I'd made Hannah watch an extended advert for military service. (laughs) If only that had been the worst of it. Anyway, I've been wanging on for ages. Hannah, question one, are you still talking to me? Question two, (laughs) Yeah. had you seen it before? It's funny because you sent me a message. We both decided to watch it at the same time, not as a deliberate thing, but that's just how our schedules were working. And I watched about the first 20 minutes of it and I thought, I must be in a funny mood because this is shit. (laughs) And then a bit later, I got a message from you saying, well, 12 minutes of that were good and the rest was awful. And I thought, what 12 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) I did go back and watch all of it, obviously. You're such a professional, mate. It didn't improve in my opinion at all. And I genuinely thought, because having never seen it, I genuinely thought it would have to have something. There would be some scene, there would be, you know, some redeeming feature somewhere in it. And I just, I couldn't find it. Oh, actually, the redeeming feature is Goldie Hawk. Yes, I would agree Actually, she does a really good job. But it would be way better to watch her do a good job with with good material she basically carries the entire film on her back and can you imagine if the script had been better i think you're right there because goldie horn's performance is very good i'm not sure it's oscar nomination worthy but there you go but there's actually there's too much of it because no one else is given anything else to do either yeah there's some basic things that are really just don't seem to make any kind of logical sense i don't really understand how she ended up in the army well, they told because, her that it had condos and a luxury yeah, Harry, yacht. Harry Dean, Harry Dean Stanton, what's he doing in this? <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton basically cons her into it. I know it's because she felt lost and she felt unanchored. Kind of suggested that she had nowhere else to go. I mean, for a start, that man that she was married to. Yale. Who's actually uh, Albert Brooks, isn't it? I mean, he left their wedding to do some work that man had life insurance there's no two ways about it so it kind of portrayed her as if she sort of ended up like and i know it's because she was emotionally bereft but that she had no support system around her or no finances or whatever so that all seemed a bit at one point her dad said but she can't do anything and i thought that's your fault wanker <laughs> if you raised a daughter to, to literally just marry people and be unable to function in the real world, don't blame her for it. Blame so, yourself. So this is quite interesting, Hannah, that you've raised this because it is one, something I wanted to talk about. Do you think, because it it's very heavy on female characters, do you think it's billing itself as a feminist film? It, but it is because at the end she walks out, doesn't she? And she refuses to be treated like that which is fair enough, but really glosses over her walking out of her career for Mm. a a bloke, a career that we've actually established that she's quite good at or well-suited to. I think there's pretty offensive jokes around her boss and his accent, which is just really like... Oh, the Turkish guy. (laughs) Oh, yeah, a little bit more racism. There's a few little bits of racism. Talking about feminism, I think the one thing that really, really leapt out is that when that guy tries to sexually assault her, she uses the word rape. And it feels like a word that, I'm not saying it wasn't the right word to use, but it feels like, in that sense, slightly ahead of its time. It seems like the sort of film that executives would have gone, oh, 
don't use that word in a comedy. Don't use the word rape. I mean, they probably use the word rape if it was a joke about rape. But, you know, that in 1980 that they had a woman calling out a man in such harsh terms did feel slightly feminist. But no, the rest of it I found not at all. I think it's trying to be, though, isn't it? So you've got her boss is a woman as well. I think it was very much a film for women. But that would have been the case in the army, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I guess so. Let's revisit her wedding night on her second husband with a sex scene that is so appalling that I'm not surprised he died because I actually physically lost the will to live <laughs> while watching it. It was dreadful. Then she goes off. So there is also this plot line of sexual liberation because she gets stoned with her friends and they talk about orgasms and which I don't know. Maybe in 1980 that stuff was really forward. I, maybe. I think it was. I've got to say in its defence, I think it was because like we've previously discussed that sexual autonomy for women and it being discussed really openly in cinema and on television was very much the 90s. Sex and the City sort of opened that door, maybe a little bit in the 80s with When Harry Met Sally, but it wasn't it wasn't the, the norm at all. We all remember this from reading Pride and Prejudice at school, you know, when you have to write that essay about rounded characters and characters who start off in one place and after a series of events and all of that, end up a better person. She's like a heart monitor, her character. It's not like a rounded thing at all. It's like she's a bit materialistic and old-fashioned and ready to be looked after by a man. But then she joins the army and she becomes a bit... But then she, like, leaves with this bloke. I don't know. It's it's odd. She has... Maybe that's the point of Judy. Maybe Judy's supposed to be an inconsistent person. I don't know. I think almost the problem with Judy is Judy's nice. She starts off nice. She's nice all the way through it. She tries hard. She ends up nice, but with a little bit more self-respect. But there's no massive change to her character, I don't think. For all of that roller coaster booper sort of arc that you've just described, mm. she ends up not far from where she started. I know she, she leaves the man, but she's walked out on her career. So she's sort of left certainty and walks into uncertainty. Is that a positive change? It's better than marrying know. him, obviously, but is it a positive change? I don't know. I mean, obviously, there are reasons, we should probably say, for people who haven't watched Private Benjamin. He seems to be in love with his ex-girlfriend who's shagging the maid. And then the thing that they, that's made quite a lot of is, is the prenup that he wants her to sign. You know, this is where I lose feminist points, but I actually agree with him on that, to be honest. If that's his family's house and he wants to ensure that she can't, sell it and from underneath him I'm, I'm kind of open to that as a as as something that maybe people should look at in marriages but maybe absolutely I no no i think as long as that door swings both ways i think his particular brand of arsehole behavior there is that she's getting a bit stroppy because she thinks he slept with the maid slash is in love with his ex-girlfriend so he goes let's have a baby and she goes okay and he goes sign this and it is about as fast as that that's how the scene moves Mm. The truly troubling thing about his behaviour is that he asks her to change the way she looks. Yes. To me, and by the end, when like she looks, I think that's the worst wedding look ever, Mick. Like, oh if my, you're worried uh, about what you might look like on your wedding day, always have that image of Private Benjamin in your head. Well, I when wasn't, she, like, but thanks, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> when she walks off in that dress with that headdress and that crazy hair through that avenue of trees. It looks like a Kate Bush video. It's so, <laughs> really, looks, really, really does. She looks so insane. I was just so pleased she got away from anywhere that might have a naked flame because she'd have gone up... 
Yeah. Can I just point out that I do not remember the opener at all with the whole sex on the bathroom floor or any of that. I remember this being a film that my mum knew I liked. And I'm talking like six or seven. So would plonk me in front of. I don't know. But maybe it explains my love of bathrooms now. I don't see, know. See, I think that sex scene is so bad. What goes on in that scene is not recognisably sex to me. It's not sexy sex. There's just a lot of her going, ooh, ah. Obviously, because she's been faking it, which is a point that they make in the future, that she meets a Frenchman and uh, has to... <laughs> a Frenchman who runs really weirdly. When he was playing football, he had a really odd gait. Just very short Maybe shorts it was all the well. fucking... Maybe. You know he's a bad one because he's mean to his dog. He is. It's weird, that scene. And I know this is like the sort of thing that I get hung up on and I shouldn't. But... She goes to his house, they wake up in bed together, right? And then his dog comes in and he's like, meet my dog. How do you go into somebody's house and actually have not met their dog? That house is fucking massive. I mean, I don't think I could go into somebody's house with a dog in it and not meet the dog. Exactly. You'd be like, you've got a dog. You've got a dog. This is amazing. (laughs) That might be how they got me back to their house by telling me you've got a dog. Exactly that. Hey, it worked for Gary. Um... (laughs) You want to look at my puppies? (laughs) Oh, no, that's my line. Um, (laughs) I also liked when her friend was giving her some life advice. This is one of my favourite lines in the film. And, you know, it it was a wasteland, to be honest. But when she goes, my motto after her husband's just died is... K Sarah Sarah, I got it from the song. <laughs> it just made me laugh. But that was it for a comedy that has made it into top a hundred lists. It's quite short on laughs, isn't it? I wasn't. I think the thing is, though, it was one of those things where I not only didn't laugh at it, I wasn't entirely sure what it was that wasn't funny. You know how, like, you can watch things that. Okay, I'm not really hugely into Judd Apatow films and A Superbad was one of those films that, that everyone went, oh, it's really great, it's really great, it's really great. And I watched it and I thought, no, it's not. It doesn't make it, it certainly didn't make me laugh. But I, I was aware of what the jokes were supposed to be. I just didn't find them funny. The, the whole chunks of this that I thought, I don't even know what bit it is that I'm supposed to be laughing at. Am I supposed to be laughing at a crazy orange hair? Am I supposed to be laughing at the fact that her husband's bullied or her fiance's bullied her into basically looking like his ex-girlfriend? Am I supposed to be laughing at the dog pissing on the carpet? I mean, I don't know. I didn't know where the jokes were supposed to be. Yeah, I think the second half really loses its way. For all that, I don't think it stood the test of time very well. It does have this notion of what it is at the beginning which is a fish out of water comedy let's take Mm. this jewish princess let's put her somewhere totally unexpected and see how she deals with it and so those montages you can see a progression you know she decides that actually this might be good for her she's going to try harder progression and then it just flips into a totally different film like the army doesn't even really get mentioned again which seems an unusual decision and strikes me as odd that then for a film called private benjamin Yeah, and that the screenplay got nominated for an Oscar. It must have been a poor year. Yeah, but let's not forget, Gwyneth Paltrow got an Oscar. I think for Shakespeare in Love. Now, I would say that is a film I liked, but who knows if I should be (laughs) watching it again or actually recommending any films ever. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it now. Thank you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just every time we talk about films, I'm just going to end up apologising to Hannah and feminism. Oh, can I just say one more thing? Of course. You know when she gets a job 
in Brussels. I think mm-hmm. it's Brussels. And they show her flying over Paris, which is slightly confusing. I don't think Paris has ever looked shitter than in that shot. How a film can make somewhere like... I mean, it's possibly a piece of stock footage. But how a film can make somewhere like Paris look as shit as it does in this film is quite impressive. I've never been to Paris, right? So maybe the pro of this film, the good thing of this film, is that when I do go to Paris, it will look better than I think it will. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what the, the the one good thing that has come out of revisiting Private Benjamin. Paris will look better when I see it. That should be its tagline. Private <laughs> Benjamin, Paris will look better when you eventually get there. <laughs> so, is it rated or dated? Dated, yeah, I would massively. say. Yeah. Hannah, what are we watching to make it all better? Cleanse my brain, my eyes, my ears, my soul. We're actually going to watch a bona fide classic that I've actually never seen before, so I can't tell you whether it will be better or not. Although, uh, you know, uh, evidence suggests it probably will. (laughs) It's going to have to really limbo if it's going to get under this low bar that we've set, right? Exactly that. So I thought we we would watch All About Eve, which is 70 next week. I've never seen it. Davis. Yeah. I did actually look to see whether whatever happened to Baby Jane was experiencing any kind of anniversary but it wasn't it isn't damn it well i'm excited i mean on the plus side if we stay in lockdown doing this you and me any longer whatever happened to baby jane might actually become a real life possibility (laughs) well there's a zoom call that everyone will want to attend Standard issue for all women.